You are listening to audio from New Life Foursquare. For more information about our church, you can visit us online at newlifefoursquare.org. And good morning, everybody. Where did everybody go today? Well, tell the person next to you, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you are here. And uh, I wanted to, uh, you know, doing this for many years, I've, I've, I'm learning that it's, it's important to acknowledge when the Lord is uh, especially at work in the room. How many of you know the Lord lives in you? If you know Jesus, he lives in you by his Holy Spirit. But when we're the church gathered like we are on Sunday mornings, sometimes God shows up in some special ways. And this is our prayer every, every week, is that God would show up and manifest himself in some special ways to all of us. Because, you know, we live in a world that well, you know, disciples us to think that all that exists is what we can see. And isn't that right? All that exists, all that is really real is what you can see and what you can buy with money. Isn't that right? So when we're the church gathered, we come acknowledging that, you know what, we may not be able to see God, but God is, is present with us in a way that he is not when we're not gathered. When we're gathered, the presence of God is very uh, powerful and special. And today, I just feel like I need to encourage some of you, before I dive into my message this morning, something that Pastor Ron um, shared and picked up on that. I feel like the, 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 there are, I have this picture in my mind of, um, uh, you know how it is when, you know how the NBA used to be, those of you who love basketball, and they didn't have all these rules like, you know, um, flagrant foul and all that. And these guys would just sometimes go at it really hard, and they would, they would just beat up on each other, and you wouldn't really see it. And then you'd sometimes see these guys playing basketball, and there's, like, blood, you know, on their arm or, you know, wherever, because they got, you know, injured or scratched or whatever. And uh, they, don't feel the, they don't feel their injury in the moment because of all the adrenaline that's pumping through their blood. They're so busy. They don't feel their injury. And it sometimes takes someone else to go, hey, 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 time out, time out, time out. We, you need to sit on the sideline for a while, take care of that wound. And I feel like there's this, um, this sense in which God's love has come to some of you today. And he's saying, hey, <laughs> time out, time out, time out. You're doing life so, like, so well and just doing the routine, going in and out of your day, just going by, doing what you do best, being a mom, being a parent, being a husband, being a wife, being a good worker, being a boss, whatever it is you do, being a good, you know, employee. And yet, there's something that's gotten injured. And you need to move aside. You need to step aside. And you need time to tend to the wound. And so, I just... I want to acknowledge that the love of God comes to us sometimes when we're not expecting it, and he makes us aware that we're like walking wounded. And in those moments, it's important for us to acknowledge, okay, God, whatever it is that's hurting in me. I heard this quote, I heard this pastor talking about this this past week, and it really um, caught my attention. He said, if the, if the healing ministry of Jesus shows us anything, if you want to know what the healing ministry of Jesus was all about, he said, if, any, if it shows us anything, it shows us that Jesus is always moving to where it hurts. Jesus is always moving toward where it hurts in your life. And so let him move to the places where it hurts today. Did you, did you sense the tenderness of the Lord's presence this morning? It was beautiful, wasn't it? Because he's moving to where it hurts. And some of you have been hurting 
for a long time and just haven't known it. Let the Lord heal your wounds today. And part of that process is just letting him, giving him space to do so. Yep, will you receive that? All right, good. Because <laughs> we're going to talk about anxiety today. How about that? We're going to dive right back into our series on the sermon, Jesus' most famous sermon, Sermon on the Mount. And I love the picture um, that we came up with today with that whole idea of us being the walking wounded and, you know, just the Lord healing us. Because people forget that the context of Jesus' most famous sermon was him healing everybody that came to him. That's the context of it. Matthew chapter 4, the end of chapter 4. All the broken, all the people hurting, people who were um, excluded in the minds of Jesus' religious culture, they were excluded from the life of the community of God because they were Gentile. All of those folks were the ones receiving ministry from Jesus. And then he steps aside and he says, let me explain to you what I've been doing. And then he gives us his most famous sermon in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So this morning, I want to pick up on this uh, message and the Sermon on the Mount. I want to give you um, an overview because it is a sermon. There's a reason they call it a sermon. Jesus didn't just like think this up spontaneously. There was some structure to his words. And so I want to take you through, uh, by way of context today, the theme of the Sermon on the Mount and the three big ideas that he's trying to get through to us. So here's how it looks, okay? The theme of Jesus' message in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is that life in the kingdom of God, life underneath the rule of God is available. Say, available. It's available. It's accessible. Not when you die, all right? It's available here and now to everyone regardless of race, color, creed, social status, Facebook status, whatever you want to call it, okay? It's available to everybody. And through reliance on Jesus, that kingdom life is possible. Now, Jesus then takes us through. He starts out with grace. He declares that the people who are broken, the people who society looks at and says, you do not qualify for the love of God. You do not qualify according to the standards of institutional religion you folks who don't qualify, says the society around us, Jesus says, you folks are blessed. And then he says things like, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the, those who mourn, blessed are the pure in heart, right? He declares blessedness on people who would not norm, normally be looked at as blessed people. It's grace. It's grace. Life under God's rule and reign now becomes viable, sensible, and the most life-giving option for all of us who are broken. And then, he mo- that's Matthew 5, 1 through 16. And then in verse 16, he moves to start talking about the nature of the good life. He starts defining and redefining what goodness and the good life really look like in terms of human character and behavior. And in essence, he teaches us that what true goodness is has to begin on the inside. This is where you find him saying things like, love your enemies, where he deals with issues that we all struggle with, like lust 
and anger and jealousy and vengeance and hatred. And he says, you have all these laws to govern your outward behavior, but I'm telling you, true goodness begins right here. And the the root of that evil behavior begins in your heart. So he defines what true goodness is. And then he moves on in the latter part in chapter 6 and 7 to say, now that I've defined what true goodness is, let me warn you and let me name some of the practices and attitudes that will keep you from living this kingdom life. And this is where he talks about things like what we're going to talk about today. And I want to dive in and zoom in to that segment in Matthew chapter 6 today to talk about this thing that we're calling anxiety. Let me read it, and we'll move right in. Yes? Are you ready? Tell the person next to you this word's for you. (laughs) I promise it's for you. Even if you don't know the person next to you, you'll know them by the end of this message, okay? Because you're going to be talking to them so much today. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, therefore I tell you, say therefore, there's a reason that therefore is there, and I'll show you that in a second. But he goes, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they. Isn't that true? Jesus gets right to the heart of our anxiety, doesn't he? Because like we're so worried and concerned about all these external things, but on the inside we're really asking the question, does God really care for me? Am I of any worth or value? And we've just been singing about that, right? We're so valuable, God would have left, even if you were the only one on this earth that needed saving, God would have left heaven to save you. We get that. And this is what he's trying to say in, in a different way here. So he goes, Look at why then do you uh, worry about clothes? Like, he sees what's in your closet. Why are you so worried? You have all these clothes in your closet. And no, I'm just kidding. He goes, why are you so worried about, about clothing? See how the lilies of the field grow? They don't labor or spin. And yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the lilies or the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you, of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall uh, shall we eat? Like what you're asking right now, right? What are we going to eat after this? (laughs) What shall we drink? What shall we wear? What shall I post on Instagram today? Don't worry, for the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Society around you has its list of things that create anxiety. They have its list of things they they deem as valuable, and they worry about those things and how to get those things for themselves. Jesus is saying, listen, if you're going to worry about anything, don't worry about all those other things. Worry about this one thing. He says it here in verse 33. Seek first the kingdom, his kingdom, and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Some of you need to take that verse, memorize it, recite it over and over again when you feel anxious. Seek first. What's most important is that you're seeking first 
his kingdom. That doesn't mean you put it on a list and say, okay, God first, family second, church third, all of that. Forget the list, okay? That, that's, this is not how Jesus is thinking. He's not saying create a list of priorities here. He's saying put God at the center of it all. And everything else will revolve around it in the right way. You see? If you put God at the center, seek first the kingdom. Then he, then he rounds it off and he says that word again. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. <laughs> Each day has enough trouble of its own. Amen? Amen. All right, so I want to talk to you today about why in the world we are so anxious. Why are we so anxious? Nowadays, anxiety and you know, what we're calling here worry is, um, is more than just you know, being concerned about things in life. Nowadays, haven't you noticed? Our society looks at anxiety as a sickness. It's a sickness. In fact, I was reading this blog from a psychiatrist, uh, psychologist who blogs and she says these words. She says, everyone reading this is familiar with anxiety. It's a part of the human condition. We are fragile, we are mortal, and we know it. Loss is inevitable. Loss is inevitable. But occasional existential anxiety does not compare with today's, look what she said, gall galloping epidemic of anxiety. Anxiety disorder affects some 40 million adult Americans, and for every person with a diagnosed disorder, there are so many more who struggle with the symptoms of anxiety, like sleep problems, worries that won't cease, fear and uneasiness, and things like shortness of breath. <laughs> like, this is a problem. Why are we so anxious? This has become like epidemic in our world. And if you did like a sociological analysis of where our anxiety might come from, you'd come up with all kinds of different possible places. Things like the pace and the pressures of, the, of life that we live here in this modern world, right? You'd come up with things like the cost of living, the fact that the family is broken down. Now everyone has to go to work and no one has time, right, to communicate, to be with each other. I mean, you could trace a bunch of this to these types of sociological sources. So I want to show you today that Jesus actually has traced our anxiety here to a few sources. In fact, He's told us already what those sources might be. You have, to, you have to go back a little bit. Remember that word, therefore? He starts out with therefore in verse 25. Every time you see the word therefore, you've got to ask yourself, what is the word therefore, therefore? When you ask that question about this passage, you find you have to back up a few verses and realize that Jesus has already given us the reasons why we're anxious. And so when he says, therefore, don't worry, what he's saying is, in light of what I just told you, which we're going to look at in a second, don't worry. In light of what I just said to you, that information would help you to actually live a worry-free life. 
Because it's one thing for me to tell you, don't worry. And isn't the reality that if you hear someone say, don't worry, it's not like you can just flip a switch and all of a sudden not be worried about anything. Isn't that right? What Jesus is saying, and the way he set it up, it's masterful. It's genius. He's saying, I'm going to tell you not to worry, but before I tell you not to worry, I'm going to show you why you're worried, because you've structured your life in a way that allows for, this, for worry and anxiety to become the norm for you. So I'm going to show you why, according to Jesus, we're so worried. And by the way, before we get to this, let's define what he means by worry. Okay? Worry is the word that he uses here, uh, merimnao in the original language. And the root word for this means to divide into parts or to go to pieces. Have any of you ever felt at times like your life is falling apart? Have any of you ever felt like there's so much coming at me, I don't know what, like I'm torn in five different directions. When you sense that, you cannot be fully present to what you need to be fully present to, right? That's Jesus' understanding here. This is that word. It's to divide, to distract, to be preoccupied with anything that causes anxiety and stress or pressure. So we're not just talking about like this, uh, you know, I'm concerned about you, I'm concerned about this, I'm concerned about that. It's when that concern actually begins to divide your mind, and when your mind is divided, your heart is soon to follow. Why are you divided? This is the plague of our modern world, folks. In order to survive, we've got to compartmentalize everything. We've got to divvy, divvy up everything in reality into manageable components. And when you're trying to manage all that, no wonder, no wonder, no wonder, you're so anxious. So let me show it to you here. Jesus says to us, you don't have to live like that. You don't have to live in that kind of anxiety. And he uses if you back up a little bit, he uses three metaphors to help us come to terms with some of the real sources of our anxiety here. The first one he begins in verse 19. So you back up a few verses, and he says this, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves Treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So the first source of our anxiety has to do with a certain kind of, let me say it this way, of investment. Jesus is using a financial metaphor here, but it's still built around this idea of treasuring something. Like considering the things that we treasure. Treasures are the things that you keep and store up because you see them as valuable. And it's on our nature as human beings to give worth and treasure things with our soul, to add value to things. And it's not all the same, is it? Like, you know, have you heard that saying before? One man's trash is another man's treasure, right? Why is that? Because we have this capacity to add value to things as human beings. It's part of how we were made in God's image. But what Jesus is saying here in one sense is that when we treasure things that are outside or apart from the kingdom of God, 
we, we actually begin to lose those things over time. But when we treasure, watch this, remember, seek ye first the kingdom of God. When we treasure the kingdom of God, when we treasure God himself and his work, what emerges out of that cannot be lost. It's got eternal value. Many of you, maybe on YouTube or maybe live, watched the funeral of Billy Graham. Remember? 99 years old. And wasn't a be- it was a beautiful thing watching his kids get up there and talk about some of his life contributions to them. And what you got was a picture of a man who for 99 years of his life here on earth, for most of that time, he invested, he invested in things that count for eternity. He invested in the lives of people. He invested in sowing the gospel into the lives of many people. And he's gone in one sense, right? He's not here on this earth anymore, but his investment is going to pay huge dividends for the kingdom of God many, many years from now. That's kingdom investment. Let me give you another take on it. Sometimes our values don't align with God's word, but sometimes we invest our mental energy in thinking way too much about what other people are saying about us. Instead of believing and valuing most what God says about us. So let me give you another angle on it, okay? If you go around believing everything people say about you folks, online or wherever it shows up, you're going to get anxious very quickly. So, yes, it's important to value the opinion of people that you love and trust, yes? But if you give more weight to everyone else's opinion instead of God's opinion about you, you're in trouble. Because what people think will always be changing, yeah? One minute they're for you, then one minute they're against you. One minute they're praising you, you know, online, and the next minute they're criticizing you online. <laughs> and if you invest your time in listening to all that conversation, you are storing up treasure in a place where it's just going to crumble in your hands. That's why some of you are so anxious. Because you care too much about what other people think. And so you got to get your heart around what God thinks. Because honestly, that's all that really matters, right? Some of you have lived enough, enough life and you've learned this just by all the experience that you have. You've learned that some stuff that you worried about when you were 25 doesn't really matter. Isn't that right? <laughs> Tell the person next to you, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't. <laughs> Think about all the things you worry about that keep you from going to sleep at night. You know, I would venture to guess that 90% of what you worry about when nobody's looking, when you're sleeping or trying to sleep in your bed at night, 90% of that stuff doesn't really matter. And you're investing your mental energy in the wrong place. Instead of worrying, you could be worshiping. Why don't you try that one out instead of worrying about it? It doesn't, doesn't do you any good, does it? And so what really matters is that you're thinking 
about how God thinks about you and about the situation. Thinking God's thoughts doesn't really matter. Oh, no, you don't understand, Pastor. You don't understand the lies that they told about me. You, you don't understand, man, some of the nasty stuff they've been circulating behind my back. You don't understand. They, they manipulated me. They cheated me. They did this. They did that. Listen, whatever it is that other human beings did to try to mess your life up, there's a verse in Proverbs that says, many are the plans in a man's heart, but it's God's purpose that prevails. Whatever people tried to do to mess your life up, folks, I'm here to tell you, it will not thwart the purpose of God over your life. This side said amen. Uh, let me try this side real quick. <laughs> You know, it was like we were in EHR last week. We were reading about Joseph, who at the end of his life, or at the end, when he, you know, all the hurt that his family caused him, and he goes through years of not having that resolved. And then finally, at the end of Genesis, in Genesis 50, when he's in a position of power to enforce his reality, he has the power now to take revenge on his brothers. And what does he say? He says, man, everything you did, you intended for bad. But God intended it for good. Like, everything that you did, you had a bad intention. You tried to mess my life up, man. You sold me into slavery. You did mess my life up for a number of years. But it didn't thwart the purposes of God. And listen, you might think that's all about you. It's not all about you. The purposes of God have to do with using your life to feed the world, to bless the world, to change something in your world to make this world a better place for the sake of the kingdom of God. <laughs> I'm just getting going, all right? I'm just getting you ready right now. All right. So make sure you give weight to what really matters. Make sure you treasure more what God thinks about you. That's a much better investment of your mental energy. Now, there's the next thing. Jesus goes on to say, the eye is a lamp of the body. The next verse, verse 22. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light, but if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. And if the light within you is darkness... How great is that darkness? Um, it's a metaphor, right? Jesus is in some ways saying, because the eye here would be a metaphor for vision and focus, the things that you take in to your soul. He says, if your eye is healthy and you're taking in the right things and you're focused on the right things, then your vision will be clear. And eventually it'll become clear, okay? You're focused on the right thing. If your eye is unhealthy and you're taking in the wrong things, your vision will be a little, uh, little foggy, a little muddy. And your ultimate focus in life, your ultimate aim will determine whether you live in the light of God's will or whether you live in the lostness of spiritual darkness. And here's the warning here. He says, it's possible for you to actually be in the dark and for your eyes, for your soul to get used to the dark. 
Just like when you're in a movie theater, right? You walk in, and it's dark, but then after a few minutes, it looks like normal. You can see stuff. Same idea. If the light would, it's possible to be in the dark and think you're in the light. That's what this last phrase is talking about. That light within you is darkness. How great. In other words, if you create a, a, an environment for your soul where all you do is take in the unhealthy things, you'll start to wander around in the dark. You'll eventually get lost, but you won't know you're lost. Because your soul gets used to the dark. And the dark actually feels like light. That's not a really good place to be. So, let me, let me see. Tell the person next to you, watch your intake. <laughs> watch what you're taking into your soul. The eyes are the window of the soul. Watch what you're taking in. We live in an information age, right? And all this technology, man. Sometimes I wonder if it's not just what we're taking in, but the sheer volume of what we take in. I mean... I was reading the statistic the other day. The average American spends five hours a day watching TV, right? Are you the average American? <laughs> Some of you are like, no, I'm way past that, Pastor, way past that one. Watch this. Nowadays, it's not even about TV anymore. The average American, guess how much time the average American spends not just watching TV, but looking at a screen, half a day, 10 to 12 hours. Great guess. You guessed that, didn't you? Awesome, Sharon. I got my stat from her, actually. <laughs> Man, I'm telling you, the sheer volume of what's available in a little device that you put in your purse or your back pocket could be the source of your anxiety, folks. Like the other night, this is like a week and a half ago, it's confession time, so I'm sitting in bed with my wife, and <laughs> this is how we are in bed. What's the schedule like tomorrow, honey? What's the schedule like this week? What you got going on, you know? And, and the other night, you know, I, I found myself getting distracted on my phone. I was like, I was checking, I was checking in on the congregation, right? I was on Instagram. And so, how is everybody doing, I wonder? How is the church doing? And then my wife said to me, um, you know, I think you're spending, like, too much time on your phone. And I'm like, nah. You know how sometimes when your spouse is the voice of God and then you're like, no, get thee behind me, Satan, right? No, no, no. He said, it got me thinking. I'm like, am I, am I really spending too much time on my phone? But then the excuse in my mind was, um, this is my alarm clock. So, you know, you set it up and it beeps and it wakes me up. And so, no, I need my phone at my bedside every single night. Well, then when she confronted me with that, I started thinking about it and threw up a little prayer to God, like, okay, God, if that's you, then just, you know, whatever. And began to realize, you know what, I think I'm spending way too much time on my phone when I should be resting and sleeping. And what do I do about my alarm clock? So you know what I did? 
I actually got on Amazon and I ordered a digital alarm clock <laughs> for 10 bucks. And it's at my bedside right now. It's crazy. It's cra- the sheer volume of what you got. Listen, I learned this new feature on my phone, all right? How many of you have an iPhone? Well, you don't have to raise your hand. So if you have a, a, a device like this, um, Samsung or, or Apple or whatever it might be, you know, there's a cool feature on it. I want it to, and the, the one on this phone, it, is, it goes like this. Like, like you just, th- this particular feature is a stress-reducing feature. You, you press the side button like that, and you hold down the home button. And then, then you, you swipe right. And lo and behold, it's off. And I can't get, I poke it, and nothing happens. Listen, especially all of you millennials out there, if, if you're, and if you have millennial friends, tell them I told you. You know that your generation, and I'm Gen X, so I think our generation is close behind that, although nobody's proven this. We're close behind in this, this addiction we have to poking. This is scientifically researched, folks. Every time you like something on Facebook or, Insta- or whatever it is, social media you use, every time there's a, you get your brain sends a hit of dopamine. Dopamine is the, uh, the pleasure chemical. makes you feel good. You know, and it's, it's the same stuff that gets released in your brain when you, when you sit and you enjoy a lovely sunset. It's the, ple- it's the same stuff. This is what gets us addicted. Sometimes I don't even think we're addicted to the stuff we do. We're addicted to the dopamine being released in our brain. Every time you, you like it, dopamine. Ah, I feel so good now. I'm, I feel so depressed today. Oh, man, let me go. Oh. We're scientifically addicted to poking, folks. And you pray for the peace of God. But you're overwhelmed with all the information coming into your brain. You say, God, give me peace. But he's got no place to put the peace. How, how can he, when you have the weight of every single thing that every person on this planet is doing on your back pocket, notifying you every single time something happens? I'm exaggerating, but listen, this is real. I gave this message at Harbor City a couple weeks ago, and, and I'm going to do some education for some of you older folks, but some of you younger folks, you'll understand this. Some of you are, you're, you, you're plagued by this, I'm just going to call it a, a spirit of FOMO. Now, if you don't know what FOMO is, get online to the Urban Dictionary and type in F-O-M-O. It's the fear of missing out. All of you, I'm getting blank stares from all the old people over 50. Listen, it's okay. This is education. Young people are afraid that if I'm not on this thing constantly, I'm missing out. I had a young person come up to me after that message two weeks ago, and he said, Pastor, everything you said about FOMO, that's me. And he was the guy that didn't go to camp that weekend. 
I go, you didn't go to camp, but God had you here so you could hear that word. And I told him, and I'll tell you today, I'm here to cast out the demon of FOMO. Because, because what you think you're missing out on, it's a deception. If you're on the phone thinking you're missing out on stuff, the real stuff you're missing out on are the people around you, right? You're me- Husbands and wives, you're going, I'm missing out, I'm missing out. Students, I'm missing No, no, you're not missing out, trust me. If you're doing that, you're actually missing out on something way more important. Of course you're going to be anxious, man. If you feel you've got to know everything that everybody is doing all the time. Tell the person next to you, turn it off. Oh, I'm just getting started. Watch your intake. Yeah, some of you are all like, I need to take notes right now. Let me tweet that one, Pastor. Let me tweet that one. It's okay. It's okay if you don't tweet it. That's all right. I get it. There's a place for this. I'm not like ragging on technology. I'm like, I got one, all right? All I'm saying is, all I'm saying is, we got to watch our intake. Some of your intake levels are way too high. Tone it down, man. And sometimes you need to turn it off. You know, we're in the season of Lent, and some of you, I'm going to challenge some of you, don't fast from meat like you're used to, like you grew up with doing. Fast from, fast from the intake of this, some, some of this stuff, right? And then when you do, you're going to realize just how addicted you are to it. I don't feel the same today. I'm so depressed because my best buddy is is off. You get what I'm talking about. All right. So the source of our anxiety, sometimes the stuff we're investing in, the mental energy we're spending is not aligned with the kingdom. You're thinking way too much about what other people are saying. Another source, we're taking in way too much, folks. And then lastly, Jesus says these words. He says in verse 24, no one can serve two masters. Either you hate the one or love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, I reread that in preparation for this. And the initial thought I had was, no, no, that's not exactly accurate, Jesus. I can easily serve two masters. I can easily work for one boss and work for the other boss and and give as much energy to both. I can, I am able to do that. Didn't you read the, the, the ethos of our culture today? Everybody is multitasking. Everybody's doing five things at the same time, and they are praising you if you can do more than that at the same time because it equals somehow productivity. Now, I know there's probably some research that's proving that wrong nowadays. But I looked at that and I said, no, no, no. I can serve two masters. Listen, you know what Jesus is talking about here? He's saying, he's talking about master. He's saying there's masters in your life. These are the things that demand your ultimate allegiance. 
They demand your ultimate allegiance. And what he's saying is, yeah, you can serve two things, two sources of significance in life if you want to. But it will cost you something. You can't serve two masters without it costing you something. You know what it costs you? It costs you your integrity. No one can serve two masters without it costing you, without something disintegrating in your life. When you try to serve two ultimate allegiances, you compromise something in your soul. It's called your credibility, your trustworthiness. And here's the thing. Jesus uses this word mammon because the pursuit of material wealth in every generation since the dawn of time has always been an idol, something that we attach to, something that we think we can serve God and material wealth, money, all of that. Our, our culture's definition of success, you see. But listen, Jesus isn't just talking about idolatry towards this thing called mammon. He's also, I think, talking about what idolatry does to your life. And that's what I want to focus on today as we close. When you attach yourself ultimately to serving something other than God or trying to serve something along with God as ultimate allegiance, it eats away at the foundations of integrity in your soul. And integrity has to do with being, listen, being the truest version of you in every situation. Now, that doesn't mean that you cannot adjust your style or adjust your approach based on the situation. It means, at the core, that you are the same person at home than you are at church. At the core, you're the same person at your workplace, at your school, than you are here on Sundays. That's why it was so powerful to, to watch Billy Graham's funeral and watch his kids come up and say about him, the Billy Graham you saw preaching to millions of people was the same guy when he came home. That's integrity. I feel like in our culture, in our society, we have, like our, our souls are disintegrating. You know why? Because there, we, we feel this pressure to create all of these different versions of ourself in every different situation. And, and what happens is you know, you've got the, we've got these different versions of, of me. You've got the, the Sunday morning me. You know, me that gets up and gets the Bible and gets ready to say, hi, how are you? I'm blessed, brother. You know, I'm blessed. You know, the Sunday morning me. And then you've got, you've got the, uh, the academic me. Some of you, you go to school and this is the me I am at school. And then you've got the Friday night me. Because this is what we do. is how we do it on Friday night. What, stay, what happens on Friday night stays at Friday night, right? And, and then you got the home me, the husband me, the wife me. And then 
you, all of a sudden, you have all of these different versions of you you've got to, to manage, like spinning plates, you know. And eventually what happens is, first of all, that is really draining. Come on. And then secondly, you never know when the, one of the plates is going to stop spinning and fall to the ground and break. And sometimes the me over here leaks out with the me over here. All of a sudden, I got the Friday night me leaking out on Sunday morning. And I'm like, oh, where did that come from? Well, you're trying to manage too many versions of you. That's what's happening. And fundamentally, there is a problem with integrity. It takes a lot of energy to live that way, folks. And listen, I would venture to say that it also creates and becomes a source of deep anxiety. I wonder if the solution to anxiety or the real issue with anxiety has to do with compromise in our integrity. Now, hear what I'm, hear what I'm saying. I'm not saying that, you know, we're against um, uh, medication and things like that. Listen, that's a reality we have to live with in our world, okay? So, and I know pastors that are on anti-anxiety medication. And there's a point where it just becomes so overwhelming that you, you need medical attention. Let's, let's just throw that out there, okay? So we're not condemning any of you. You're no, there's no judgment here. If you've been struggling with that, anxiety, depression. But sometimes, as I read Jesus' words, I wonder if the real antidote to our anxiety is integrity. Like, I'm going to stop pretending. And I'm going to be brutally honest with God and myself. And I'm going to stop living the lie that I've been living over here and the false version of me that I've been living over there so that people will like me. Because if I keep trying to spin that around, I keep getting more anxious. <gasps> what if they find out what I'm really like? <gasps> what if I get exposed there? <gasps> Listen, if anything gets exposed in your life, friends, <laughs> Ronnie was saying it earlier, stuff dies. God brings us through a death process. He calls us to die to ourselves. Sometimes I wonder if what he, Jesus really means is die to your false selves. Die to the false versions of you so you can come alive in the truest version of how God has made you to be. Because if you live in the false life, false self in those ways, no wonder you're so anxious. No wonder you're not at peace. Because you've got, you got to protect this over here, and you've got, to protect, you've, got to, you've got to protect that lie over there that you created. Then you've got to protect this. Oh, and you've got to make sure that nobody from this situation knows this, the, the information from this situation. Because then, how do, you, how do you sleep? You see? Something will break down. So, this morning... I want you to see those words of Jesus when he says, right after he says these three things, here are the sources of your anxiety. Where are you investing? What are you taking in? Is there a compromise in your integrity? And I want you to see these words when he says, now that I've shown you the three sources of where your anxiety might be coming from, therefore, I tell you, do not be divided in your mind. Be worried or anxious about your life. 
How do I obey that command? Listen, the way you listen, the way you hear that command is important. Like I said earlier, you can't flip a switch. Instead of asking yourself, okay, Jesus, okay, I'm going to obey that command. Stop worrying. Instead of going there, instead ask yourself, Jesus, you said don't worry. You've given me the sources of why I might be anxious. Ask yourself, how can I become the kind of person that would naturally, spontaneously, and with joy obey this command? That's a different way to see it, isn't it? So Dallas Willard says in Divine Conspiracy, how can I become the kind of person? It's not just about obeying rules. It's just not about being a good little boy or girl. Jesus wants you to cultivate a lifestyle that weeds out worry. And it's possible. Tell the person next to you, it's possible. It's possible. I can become the kind of person that lives at peace and free from anxiety because of the way I structure my life. I think I'm done. And I think you're done too. So tell the person next to you, do not worry. Now you know that it's not just about, okay, I'm not going to worry. It's about asking yourself, what am I investing my time in? What am I taking in? Maybe I'm taking in way too much. Maybe the nature of the stuff I'm taking into my soul is creating this anxiety. And how do I start to live a life of integrity? The answer is simple. Doing it is actually hard. The answer is, Start with complete and total honesty with yourself and God. That's where it begins. And you'll be on your way to building, a, to becoming the kind of person that can resist anxiety and worry and fear. It's possible, man. It's possible. Stand to your feet and let's pray. Thank you for listening to audio from New Life Foursquare, located in Harbor City and Norwalk, California. Feel free to make copies of this audio to share with others, but please do not charge for those copies or change the content in any way without permission. For more information, you can visit us online at newlifefoursquare.org.